0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. On January 4th, a 17-year-old Perry High School student brought weapons to school and opened fire in the cafeteria shared by Perry's middle and high schools. 6th grader Amir Joliff was killed. Seven others, including the Perry High School principal, Dan Marburger, two other staff members, and four teenage students were wounded, and the gunman took his own life. Incidents like this are far too common. There were nearly 350 school shootings in 2023. In the wake of this tragedy, as wounds are treated and a dead child is mourned, students, teachers, staff members, and parents often find themselves wondering... Will my school be next? Will my child be next? For those who experienced or witnessed this violence, how do they move forward? Later in the hour, I'll talk with clinical psychologist Holly Sanger, Mike Baranick of the Iowa State Education Association, and a member of an area education agency trauma response team. With me right now is Taylor Ford, Assistant Director of Clinical Services and Crisis Response at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa. It opened in June of 2021. The center is the state's hub for school based mental health research, training, professional learning, and clinical services. Taylor, welcome. Thank you. In the wake of violence or tragedy in a school, what kind of services can the Scanlon Center provide?
2: Yeah, so we offer a number of services. Um, Our probably most widely used service uh, are individual telehealth services. So we are available to provide services uh, free of charge at this time to all K-12 students and staff. Um, So students ages 10 and up for individual and then any school staff in Iowa. Um, And we can do that via telehealth. Uh, specifically in response to crisis, we also have post-crisis services, which is the team that I oversee. Um, and under those services, we have a team of clinicians that are able to go out on site to schools um, after a crisis event where we have Counselors on site for people that want to engage in either individual or small group counseling. We create uh, kind of what we're referring to as a wellness room. So a p- place that has different stations throughout the room where people can come, take a break from class, kind of just engage, see what we're all about. Um, we have various therapeutic games and activities there as well. Um, and then the last major service under our post-crisis service uh, is a uh, crisis team support group. So those that are responding um, in schools for crisis, school-based crisis teams, we offer support to them um, so that we can support those who are supporting others. Give me kind of
1: a an idea of what kind of crises you would respond to. I mean, obviously, a school shooting is a crisis that you would respond to. What are some of the other
2: events that would
1: bring your team to a school?
2: Sure. So we loosely define crisis as any death or natural disaster. So um, suicide, homicide, school shootings, if there were to be another derecho, um, those kinds of things, uh, any any sudden crisis um, we're, were able to be there after that initial crisis period.
1: After something terrible has happened, people often are in shock. People often need help. But a lot of people don't know that they need help. So when you go to a school, how do you identify
2: students or staff members that need your assistance? Sure. All of our services are voluntary, so uh, individuals do identify themselves. One of the really cool things about our on-site wellness room is that we have other options other than counseling there. So we often bring donuts. um, We have, you know, as I mentioned, therapeutic games, coloring stations, a lot of different mindfulness activities so that if you're unsure about counseling or if you need help, there's a really welcoming space that you can come and just check it out. So we find often students are coming in in the morning maybe just to grab a donut check us out, grab a sticker. Um, And then later in the day, they come back with a group of friends. Um, And so um, we're really able to kind of reach those people that are unsure if they need help. Um, But we are actually not the ones identifying them on an individual basis. Do you get referrals from teachers and staff members, students that they see
1: and say, I I think this child is struggling.
2: Yes, definitely. And it it looks a little different with our post-crisis services versus our individual telehealth. So for individual telehealth, we are getting referrals from school mental health providers, uh, AEA staff, school administrators. So those do come directly from the school where they identify that need. And then we work with the parents and the family, um, you know, to make sure they're on board and get consent and all of that. For post-crisis, um, there are times where there's suggestions from the school of of who to meet with, but again, it's voluntary. So um, it is up to that individual student or staff member if they would like to engage in support. In the wake of a crisis,
1: the feelings of people who are affected can change over time, and some of these needs may not become a way apparent for a while. How do you help with that?
2: Yeah. So that's part of the reason our services are called post-crisis services. So um, in the state of Iowa, the crisis response, so like that first one to three day period right after the event happens, um, is typically responded to by crisis teams from the AEA, uh, mobile crisis, community providers. It looks a little different in different parts of the state. Um, After consulting with all of those who are responding right away to crises in schools, when we were designing our services, Across the board, we were hearing about a gap after that. So after that kind of one to three day period, there's a lot of support, a lot of hands on deck. um, And then those people get pulled away either to the next crisis or to, you know, some other responsibilities. So our services post-crisis, meaning we come in after that initial crisis stabilization period. And then the length of time that we're able to provide support varies and is very individualized to the school.
1: For parents, for care providers, for teachers, in the wake of a tragedy like this one or or really any other tragedy that might affect a school population, what kinds of behaviors should they be aware of, should they be looking for that might be indicators
2: that a child is struggling? Absolutely. So I think you, you kind of hit it right there with behavioral indicators. So you want to look for major behavior changes, um, issues with sleep, appetite. You might notice mood, um, different emotions, fear, anxiety. Uh, sometimes people will withdraw or isolate more. So any kind of major shift in a behavior is what you're going to want to be looking for. In the wake of a crisis like this, we often have conversations about how
1: it could be prevented, and we're not going to solve that problem today. But I know that, that people are constantly trying to help young people who are in need, in crisis, before they hurt themselves, before they hurt others. Schools don't have enough staff or enough resources to make sure that every child is okay or provide those resources to every child. Is that something that the Scanlon Center can help with?
2: Absolutely. So we kind of view ourselves as an adjunct service and kind of an additional layer of support to um, help the, the ways that schools are already supporting students and families. And so our services are designed specifically to serve those that experience barriers in accessing care to, for mental health providers, um, whether that's a transportation barrier, a financial barrier. Um, one of the really unique things about our services is that we provide them uh, virtually during the school day. So the student is, they're pulled from class, they're in a private room and someone from the school helps them log on and we're able to see them during the school day whereas if the only option otherwise was for a parent to come and get them and if they're in a rural area maybe drive an hour um, you know there's all those kinds of barriers that can prevent people from getting that support. How long can you engage with a student? Um, So our services are currently set up to be a short term model so up to 10 sessions um, because our goal really is to stabilize and then from session one we're working to connect them with local providers so we are really there to bridge. A lot of times, we have people who are on wait lists for services for a long time, long term provider, um, and we're able, but they need help right now. So we're able to get them in, kind of see them until they're able to start with that long term provider um, and kind of bridge that gap. We also then prioritize individuals in a rural area um, and then others that are experiencing barriers as well.
1: What a good analogy to to those kind of services that you provide, be like an employee assistance program that a lot of people can access through their work, where it's instant response, but it's not long-term.
2: Absolutely, Um, and just due to capacity, and since we serve the whole state, at this time we're not able to provide that long-term support, but um, there are ways that we can get people connected locally to people that are also able to provide that support.
1: Okay, but that's still a problem, because I, I have talked to so many parents whose kids are in trouble, whose kids have threatened to hurt themselves, who try to get care and wind up on waiting lists for months and months and months. Or they have to send their child across the Mm -hmm. state to a psychiatric ward where there's the one bed that's available in the state? I mean, we really have a crisis of care in the state. How do you connect people
2: when there's no one to connect them to? It's really challenging. Um, So as a social worker, you know, our role is to connect people to resources and support. um, And we have to work with what we have. And so there are a lot of helpers out there helping. And there are a lot of barriers that get in the way of us actually accessing that support. So we know there's a lack of, you know, mental health beds and hospitals in Iowa and all sorts of other things. But I think we work really hard to help bridge that gap. So if someone is on a waiting list, we're able to see them kind of in the interim because oftentimes people need help now, not in four months when their name comes up. They might still need help in four months, but really that immediate need is right now. And so that's where we can come in and provide that shorter-term support while also working with the individual and or their family to get them connected to longer-term options. Um, So we have a lot of different ways that we're able to – look for resources in the community and kind of find um, openings that are available locally. You mentioned earlier helping the helpers.
1: And I mean, this, this work can be so heartbreaking and so difficult because you're really witnessing some hard things. It's hard for teachers as well. Plus, teachers and other staff members are dealing with their own anxiety. After the shooting in Perry, I'm sure there are a lot of teachers and staff members who had a hard time going back to their school the next day because they thought, It could be us next. Mm -hmm. What would you like teachers and other caregivers, other professionals to know about
2: their needs? Mm I think, uh, you know, I hope they know that we're here for them, too. Uh, we're not here just just to serve students, though we do that. We also are here to support any educator, um, anyone employed by the school, um, and services are free of charge. Uh, you can just self-refer, so reach out to us by email, and we're happy to get working with you. I think with our crisis team su- support specifically, that's a service that's really important to me because we know that those people are already holding so much uh, in the midst of a tragedy where they're sometimes we're often emotionally connected themselves. And so being able to support them so that they can continue to support everyone else in their school community is really important.
1: Taylor, thank you so
2: much. Yes, thank you. Taylor
1: Ford, Assistant Director of Clinical Services and Crisis Response at the Scanlon Center for School Mental Health at the University of Iowa. Again, it opened in June of 2021, and the center is the state's hub for school-based mental health research, training, professional learning, and clinical services. I also want to mention 988 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You can call or text if you need help or if a loved one Needs assistance. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org.
3: Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Many Iowans are still reeling after the school shooting in Perry, dealing with fear sadness, anger, feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, anxiety, and more. In a few minutes, I'll talk with clinical psychologist Holly Sanger about dealing with those emotions and helping others who may be struggling. And Mike Boronic of the Iowa State Education Association will be here to talk about support for educators. With me now is Jane King. She is a school psychologist and co-lead for Crisis Prevention and Response with Green Hill's Area Education Agency and Jane welcome to the show
3: thanks so much for having me Charity I'm happy to be here
1: and with uh, an area education agency Perry is not in the Green Hills area but an AEA is on site has been on site helping with this response how does an AEA respond to a crisis
3: sure So an AEA really responds uh, based on a district's need. So we always are looking to kind of work collaboratively with the district. Uh, We are kind of um, taking their lead on what they might have in place and then where they might need um, help uh, given the crisis event that has occurred. So we always wanna make sure that we're partnering with a school district in a collaborative way Um, so that we can just make sure that comprehensive supports are in place for students, staff, and families uh, following a crisis event.
1: So when there is a crisis event, you're often in a school working with the students. Tell me what you can bring to the situation
3: really one of the big strengths that AEA staff can provide is that we are embedded within school districts on a daily basis. So we're very familiar with how each district works that we serve, uh, what the strengths and maybe areas of need are uh, in any given district. And we're also familiar with students. And what we know following a crisis event is that Um, a very important thing is getting kids back to some level of familiarity, um, some level of kind of I know what to expect or level of predictability. And to the extent that we can be familiar faces or at least have an awareness of how a district typically operates, um, that's going to work to our advantage when we're supporting um, students and staff following an event like this.
1: How long can the AEA be embedded with a district after an event like this?
3: Really, there isn't any cutoff. It is dependent upon need. Um, Things have changed quite a bit over the years. It used to be that when we responded, we would maybe be there for a couple of days, maybe three days, and then our supports would fade out. Now we know that um, the best way to provide crisis response is in, re, in response to demonstrated need. And sometimes those needs don't show up for students until um, a bit you know, longer of a time period. So it isn't unusual for us to uh, respond initially and then maybe um, return to a district to carry out specific interventions when needed. Certainly uh, after a very um, highly traumatic incident that has happened in a school setting, that support would be ongoing um, for as long as it would be needed. Um, we, do, we do have a process of determining when we need to refer out to community-based supports, and so certainly we're always considering you know, whether uh, higher-level community-based supports are needed for students or staff as well.
1: You've been working with the AEA for 20 years, so you have helped in a lot of crisis situations, a lot of different kinds of crises. How have you seen things change over the last 20 years? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. They definitely have changed. I would say probably the two biggest things that I have kind of observed are number one, just the impact of social media and how quickly information can travel, uh, how, how quickly correct information, and also maybe information that isn't verified. Um, and so our teams are, are kind of facing that as a challenge when it comes to um, delivering news in a respectful and appropriate manner, as opposed to a student maybe just looking at a phone and, and seeing that something has happened. Um, We also have noticed that there's increased collaboration with our community partners in many school districts. Um, Maybe not all districts, uh, but many of our districts have gotten to the point in their planning and they're um, kind of um, addressing all aspects of school safety uh, where they're working directly with their local law enforcement to plan for all different types of crisis events that could occur in a school setting. And that increased collaboration really um, has become invaluable uh, as we think about you know, a moment um, occurring where it maybe is a school district's um you know, worst fears or or just any type of crisis event has occurred um, to have those relationships built with our community partners um, in local law enforcement is is just highly um highly valuable.
1: We know of course that a crisis event can be destabilizing for a lot of individuals and and for a district and often one crisis can lead to another crisis. And we all want to stop this. So I know that prevention has been a focus of your work. What can you and other school psychologists and AEAs do to, to help prevent crisis?
3: One thing, you know, there's there's multiple things. I would say it's not just one thing that's going to be, um, you know, the magic fix um, for anything school safety related. But um, One thing that AEAs across the state are uh, providing for districts is formal training on all aspects of school safety, really, Um, when it comes to um, prevention programs, um, when we think about how do we respond if something unexpected happens, and then how do we support our school communities following an event. Uh, We do have formal training for AEA staff, as well as our district partners, in each of those areas. Um, in school safety, we think about it as what are we doing before, during, and after uh, to make sure we're prepared to support students and staff, as well as their, you know, the students' families. Uh, and then we're also doing things that are more informal. Formal. We're serving on district safety teams or crisis response teams. So, um, when I think about my role in crisis response, I have my role that is uh, AEA-wide, but I also have the role I play within my district. Um, So, you know, we really are trying to help everyone understand that we all have a role to play when it comes to uh, the safety of a school community. And so we then need to be training and, and providing specific guidance on what that role looks like if you are a teacher, if you are a bus driver, if you are a student, if you are a parent. Um, the more we can provide guidance on that, the more we're all working together um, to, to help ensure that our schools are as safe as possible.
1: You've been part of creating classes on suicide prevention and other crisis topics. Are those classes for students or are those classes for staff?
3: Um, Primarily, they are for staff. Uh, That being said, we have launched um, several um, groups uh, called Hope Squad, which is a peer-to-peer suicide prevention program in our part of the state. I think that there are um, Hope Squad um, groups uh, forming in other parts of the state as well. Um, And that we see as a very, very important layer of what we do to prevent suicide um, within the school setting and to really just strengthen the overall positive and supportive culture of a school building uh, for all students. So um, that's an exciting um, and very um, powerful group um, to, to have um, being started throughout the state um, to, to get at kind of what do we do to help students understand um, how to notice warning signs for maybe um, harm towards self, how to also seek help for someone um, when it's needed.
1: Jane, thank you so much for talking with me.
3: Absolutely, Charity. Thank you. And just wanted to communicate out that we sure are thinking about uh, the Perry community, our partners at the AEA there, and that entire community as they work through um, this most difficult time.
1: Jane King is a school psychologist and co-lead for Crisis Prevention and Response at Green Hills Area Education Agency. This hour, we are talking about what happens in the wake of a school shooting or a crisis at a school. Of course, it was just a week ago that the school shooting took place in Perry, Iowa. And with me now is Holly Sanger. She is an Iowa City-based clinical psychologist, and she has worked with survivors of gun violence. Holly, thank you so much for coming back to the show.
4: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: I also want to mention that you are a volunteer with Moms Demand Action, a nonprofit that advocates for public safety measures that can protect people from gun violence. You are not speaking on behalf of that group today. Um, Holly, when this happened a week ago in Perry, the night after the shooting, I got a, a message from a friend who said, Why is this hitting me so much harder than other school shootings? And she said, you know, I all school shootings hit me hard. Why is this one feel so much more personal? And I have some thoughts on that, but but why do you think for mm-hmm. so for so many of us in Iowa, why did this school shooting drive home that this really could happen anywhere?
4: Yeah, I think, you know, we tend to protect ourselves by thinking it can't happen here. That happens in big cities. That happens in giant schools. That happens um, not in Iowa. And then to have it happen in Iowa, it, it shatters the illusion that we are safe. And that really hits hard hard because if it can happen in a small town, it can happen Anywhere, and we know that, that to be true. Um, and so, I think it's it's easier to put distance between us and the event when it's far away. Yeah, it's harder when when we have, for example, walked through that school
1: or driven through that town, um, or that town looks like our town exactly. And of course, there there have been school shootings in Iowa in. Very recent history in Des Moines. Even those shootings didn't happen within the walls of the school, and I feel like that again is something that that has created that illusion of well, at least the school building is safe. Right. Yeah. So I think this is a
4: breach of our of our um, thoughts about security, and when when that gets breached. We have a couple of options. One, we can say, I'm going to shut down. Or because it really leaves us feeling very vulnerable. And, and so I think for a lot of people, when it happens inside a school, schools are supposed to be safe places. Churches are supposed to be safe places. Actually, grocery stores are supposed to be safe places. And so when we think, you know, I think twice before I go to a movie theater now. Because movie theaters are supposed to be safe places, and you know, I fifty nine percent of adults in this country have experienced report that some either they themselves or someone they care about has been impacted by gun violence. Fifty nine percent. That's, I mean, if you look to the left or the right, right, that's a lot of us, and so. Again, it's one thing when I think, "Oh, this happened in a si- a big city like Des Moines, or um it happened far away but but it's different when it's in our backyard,
2: right
1: so when something like this happens, and that anxiety hits, and I think a lot of people are surprised by it. you know they they experience this tragedy as as a an observer watching it on the news. It's heartbreaking and yet. The next time you go to drop your kid off at school, that anxiety can hit and hit hard or it can hit for the student or it can hit for the teacher or the janitor or the lunch person. It, we, <laughs> A right. lot of people experience this fear and anxiety because of an event like this. Yeah, and we have what we call collective
4: trauma. And I think it's so important, especially as parents or grandparents, that we have to sort through what we're thinking and feeling and how we want to approach this so that we can approach our kids who are vulnerable in different sorts of ways, depending on their age, you know, yeah. what age they are. Um, but it's a whole community that's impacted. I mean, the, the janitor maybe smiles at, at the child who was killed or has a conversation with the person who was the
1: shooter. I mean, this is, we're so linked when you start to feel that anxiety or are surprised by it, I mean, what are some of the the signs that oh i I'm experiencing something because of this and I might need to get help, yeah, so I think before getting
4: help, it's really important to talk to trusted others and by trusted others, I mean people who are not going to tell us get over it um people who we can bring hard stuff to who will help us hold that. And that could be in a church, that could be our friendship group, um, it could be colleagues that we work with. And I think being able to talk about it lets us reminds us that we're not alone because part of the reason that we can get so anxious is that we feel like, I've got to fix this and and I'm how am I going to fix this? And none of us individually can fix this, but we can, you know, rely on other people to process how we're feeling. And, you know, it's so important to process how we're feeling because that's how we get to, is this a normal reaction? So I would expect, you know, we can, people might be angry, they might be crying, they might be anxious, they might feel hopeless or helpless. You know, that's a normative response to an abnormal event. If those things continue, though, that's when seeking help might be really important. And, you know, I have to say, um, as a psychologist in Iowa and a member of the Iowa Psychological Association, I was really proud of how quickly, on our listserv, um, emails started coming about here's what we're doing here, here's the team that's going to go in there. And when I mentioned I was going to be on this show, immediately three people sent me articles that were incredibly helpful. And so the, you know, I think we are really building this support system that is available. The, the difficult part is how do we get from the individual person who said, I can't drop my kid off at school this morning. Um, and then that continues, if that continues. Right. How do we get from that individual person to the support system?
1: Right. And we're going to have to take a break here, but we've been talking about the, the support that goes into schools and how long they can or cannot stay. Some of these feelings may be delayed too, right? Yes, of course. And
4: those are the ones, especially if it's our children, like we want to stay connected to
1: them and be checking in 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 order to make sure we catch it early. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Holly Sanger. She is an Iowa City-based clinical psychologist. And we're talking about how to deal with our emotions, how to seek help when we need help in the wake of violence, such as the school shooting that took place a week ago in Perry, Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.
0: Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor vein and CorridorAesthetics.com.
1: It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Many Iowans are still reeling after the school shooting in Perry just a week ago, and there are so many emotions. Of course, people in Perry are dealing with so much loss, and that loss sense of safety as well. That's a feeling a lot of people all over Iowa, all over the country have. There are also feelings of fear, sadness, anger, hopelessness, helplessness, anxiety, and more. With me right now is Holly Sanger. She is a clinical psychologist based in Iowa City, and we're talking about dealing with those feelings. But I also want to bring someone else into the conversation, and you're welcome to join as well with your questions, You've probably been having conversations about this in your home. Give us a call at 866-780-9100 or send email to talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. With us also now is Mike Bernick. He is the president of the Iowa State Education Association. Mike, welcome.
5: Thank you, Charity. Thank you for bringing to light this important conversation.
1: And Mike, we've been talking about how people, generally people, experience this sadness, fear, anger, anxiety in the wake of a tragedy like this one. Educators everywhere have been trained how to deal with events like this. They have had to live with the reality that this could happen at their school. And I'm sure having this happen in Perry, Iowa, made a lot of educators think, oh, this really could happen in my school. Mike, what what are you thinking about all, all of these educators right now who, who were teaching on that day and had to go to school the next day?
5: Well, this uh, situation that occurred in Perry was uh, very traumatic for not only those folks that are working in Perry, but um, in our public schools all across Iowa. This is a reality that our educators have had to face for a number of years. And I can tell you that those folks who were working in other schools were continuing to do their jobs, but they were concerned for the safety of their children in their classrooms or the ones that they're working with and the children that they have at home. And uh, they needed to continue to move forward and and educate our kids, but they had to uh, think about uh, what it means now to be an educator in our schools across the country.
1: I know that uh An educator in Iowa shared some of her thoughts on social media, Ann Swenson, about what it's like to work on the day of a school shooting. Can you share that with us?
5: Sure. Um, Yes, Ann is a good friend of mine, and she made a posting that day that, of course, the steps that she was going through were the initial shock of hearing this and how would she be able to continue through the day and she would be looking at and talking with her colleagues and looking in the eyes of each other and they'd be thinking oh my gosh how are we going to navigate through this and they did. They worked with her kids, and they'd be checking their phone for news updates, and they would be working through their own anxiety and, and fears, and then they'd go home, and they'd listen to the news and have conversation with their friends and family and cry that they knew that they were um, in a situation where there could be great harm for any of the kids in their charge. And so uh, Anne's post was uh, remarkable in terms of um, putting into words what it is that all of our educators are facing and community members when they hear these kind of situations occur and how then they need to um, work with the kids that they have there in their building.
1: And of course, students are the number one priority of, of every educator, but they're also putting their lives at risk. And, and we saw that in Perry, where the adults in the building did what they could to de-escalate and to protect the children in the building. So uh, these adults are are very much at risk.
5: Absolutely, Charity, when I started teaching um, third grade 35 years ago, my focus was on making sure that the kids knew how to subtract across the middle zero and they could read and comprehend. But now, today, our educators are having to face a litany of other issues. And safety, the safety of our students and those that we work with are our priority, of course. Um, But this is not something that typically is is, uh, discussed in a teacher prep program or in training programs across the country. And um, we're asking our staff to protect our students with their lives, Um, students that are in their care. Um, Our educators deserve the utmost respect and dedication, um, and we need to give them the resources necessary to accomplish not only teaching our kids, but to keep them safe and healthy.
1: Mike, you attended the vigil in Perry that took place after the shooting. You also spoke at that vigil. What did you say?
5: Well, I extended um, my heartfelt grief uh, to the community and thanked the community for uh, their rallying around that school. The ISCA is part of the National Education Association, and I had folks from across the country reach out to me that day, um, wishing uh, us well as we navigate this, and we're offering their services. In fact, Becky Pringle, the president of the NEA, contacted me, and I wanted to share with the community of Perry that um, they're not alone. And that there are people all across this country who are trying to answer the questions, that are trying to find the answers uh, to those questions, and that are here to help us. Unfortunately, when these situations occur, um, things need to move very quickly, and I have to give uh, great credit to our area education agencies. Um, they were there immediately. I believe it was Heartland who went in and started to establish uh, services. Um, and that's true in the other occurrences that have happened here in Iowa. Uh, we need to remember that there was quite a tragic event that happened at, the, uh, at Fairfield Community yeah. Schools. And AEA was there immediately, as, lo- as well as our staff from the ISCA. And um, having uh, those folks available for uh, our educators and our students to have conversations is incredibly important. And you've had some great people on here. The Scanlon Center is nationally recognized for the work that they do. And so we're putting into places the uh, pieces that we need, but we need to also understand as a society that this is going to continue to happen and that we need to Support our schools and support those folks who are there to educate the children of the community.
1: A a lot of changes have been made to schools to um, harden the schools. That's the that's the terminology that gets used in talking about trying to to make it less possible for someone to walk into a school with a gun and, and open fire. But Mike, you and I have talked a lot about teacher shortages and a lot of the challenges facing teachers and and other educators in recent years, and in particular here in Iowa. This has to be part of that equation for people when they decide whether or not they want to be a teacher. Do Do you feel like this is impacting the future of teaching?
5: It impacts the entire system, Charity. It impacts those folks who are thinking about going to college for a teacher prep program, those folks who are in a program, and those folks who are working in our schools. Um, I can tell you from uh, past experiences, there are very long-term residual effects uh, for our folks uh, when these events occur. And uh, there is always a question on whether folks would like to continue on with their profession and sign a contract for the next year because of the demands that are being placed on them and their need to ensure that our students are always safe. um, And they need to do that protection sometimes with their own lives. And so, yes, uh, these situations cause great concern for everyone within the system, and it is just one more layer to... uh, the continued uh, shortage that we're seeing here in Iowa and across the country.
1: Mike, thank you so much for talking with me.
5: Absolutely, Charity. Thank you for As I said, thank you for bringing this to light.
1: Mike Beronic is the president of the Iowa State Education Association. Holly Sanger is still with us. She is a an Iowa City-based clinical psychologist and Holly, a few minutes ago we were talking about the fact that there there are there's the way that you feel immediately when something like this happens. But the the effects last longer than a few days, longer than a few weeks, and may even begin to show themselves later. You've worked with people who are survivors of gun violence. Can you tell me a little bit about that process and and what to watch for longer term? Sure,
4: yeah. So, and I'm thinking of the, the shooting that happened at the Coral Ridge Mall. Um, twenty fifteen, I think. Um, but you know, we and I think across Iowa and across the United States, like even though my practice has wait lists, we I think really try to prioritize if somebody calls in and says, My my family was at the Coral Ridge Mall or my my kid was at the school, um, that we try to get them in as quickly as possible. And what I've found is that for most people who don't have a trauma history. A lot of the work is just about helping them make sense of what happened, and to restore a sense of equilibrium, and to clarify any misconceptions that might happen. For example, I can remember a mom saying to me, "I should have thrown. I should have gone after the person who is who had the weapon." Um, this is somebody who threw herself over her child, right? Right. And so. Um, and that can be a really common after effect that we see is people have survivor guilt. And right. so we blame ourselves. Yes, like I should have done more. I should have somehow known something that was impossible for me to know. And so I think really helping clarify what's a reasonable expectation for how well we can do because none of us really know how we're going to react in a crisis. I mean, and unless we have a lot of training of what to do in a crisis and we sort of automatically default to that, and so I think it's really important to normalize for people what you're feeling is, is, is what you're feeling and it's okay. Let's make sense of it. Let's, let's sort of figure out what's next. Can you restore? How do we restore security? And a lot of that's going to be about basic self-care, establishing a routine or reestablishing a routine, um, making sure that there's time to check in with other people about how are you doing um and then there's a, a wealth of other things get good sleep eat well balanced meals do if it's going for a walk if it's praying if it is doing a breathing i do a breathing practice every day that i think has really over the last 15 years changed my life dramatically and really helpful and it helps me stay centered i can come back to center more quickly when when we have those sort of habits built in. Right. And really that's the task. How do we come back to normal with this information that
1: this could happen anywhere, anytime? There is a stigma to feeling fear, to being afraid to do something that you normally do. We need to destigmatize that as well, right? Yes, yes. I mean it
4: was it's interesting because when I even admitted on air I'm a little hesitant to go to movie theaters right now, you know, or since over the last couple of years. And I thought, ooh, now
1: like what's, there's stigma attached to that. Right. But people are afraid to go to music festivals and and people are are afraid to go to school.
4: And so much of this is about validating the experience rather than, and, and it's what I call, you know, can we listen to understand the other's experience versus listening to respond with what we think is the right thing to do. And we're unfortunately, really good at the second one, which is, you know, before somebody's even finished their sentence, we have a response. If we're listening to understand, we have more information about what's going on for that person and how they're experiencing what's happened. And then, you know, we want to validate that. Especially,
1: it is okay to be scared. I think not only is there a stigma to feeling these feelings, but as you know, in your line of work, we're not all good at expressing. Our feelings, and particularly children, do right. struggle with that. It's hard to name a feeling when you haven't had that experience before. And and particularly if you're trying to help a child deal with something like mm-hmm. this, how do you help them name their feelings?
4: Yeah, well, one is is really check in with them with open-ended questions, not are you okay? Because they're going to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, and so open-ended questions. And then also sometimes it can be helpful to say, you know, mommy was scared when I heard this. I wonder if you were scared. Because then we're normalizing that it's okay to be scared or mommy feels a little anxious about this. Now, again, this has got to be age-appropriate, which is um, right. a whole
0: other uh, challenge. challenge. Yeah. yeah.
4: Um, but But helping them find a way you know, where there's even maybe a family meeting where everybody comes together and says, how are we all doing? And then finding pathways so that keeping your eye open so that if you do see some behaviors, like if a kid quits sleeping, if a kid is doing school refusal, if somebody starts wetting the bed who hasn't wet the bed in a long time, if they seem anxious, if they seem hyper aroused about things, then that's when you probably want to seek some help. And it doesn't have to be 20 years of therapy. I mean, what I found with, with the folks that came in following the Coral Ridge shooting was that most of them only came in four or five times um, because it was just, again, about how do we validate their experience and help them move forward, because we all have to move forward, move forward still holding the trauma and the tragedy, but also understanding that we're resilient people. And and I'm not in any way suggesting that... that um, People who are intimately involved with a trauma like this feel that immediately. Of course not.
1: Right. We are going to run out of time here shortly, but I have two important questions that I want to ask you. And one is, I mean, you talked about making sense out of this. It's It's impossible to make sense out of this. Um, How do you recommend that people work through that feeling of helplessness? What can you do as you move forward, And just briefly?
4: Yeah, so for me, (laughs) the primary way has been action. Um, You know, in in Moms Demand Action, we have a phrase every time there's an event, you know, grieve today and then get back to work, keep going. Um, Honor through action. And I think that doesn't have to be working for gun violence prevention. That could be um, volunteering at a food bank it could for children, it could be anything that's age appropriate. I saw a story yesterday that um, I think it was a some group of kids got teddy bears for everybody. Mm. Which I mean I can hear that and think, okay. But it's doing something it, gave it is a, them a yes, meaningful thing
1: to do. Yes. And that's about community. And that's about we're all in this together. All right, and final question. Where do people find the resources that they need to to deal with these issues? Obviously, calling a therapist, asking for help is great. Talking to your school therapist or your school psychologist, but where else can we turn? Yeah. So the National Association of School Psychologists has
4: a uh, infographic in ten languages. Uh, it is called "Talking to Children About Violence," and it's wonderful. It's really, really good, and I love the fact that it was in ten languages. So there's there's things like that. There's also um, a terrific book, and this is for kids four to eight. It's called A Terrible Thing Happened. The author is Margaret Holmes. Um, go to the American Psychological Association website. Contact your local psych- state psych- psychological association. Um, reach out, for example, to the Survivor Network of Every Town, which is the. It is an incredibly powerful and wonderful way for people who have experienced trauma to be able to heal with others who understand what's happened. Holly
1: Sanger, thank you so much for being here today and for talking us through this. Thank you so much. And of course, our thoughts are with the people of Perry and survivors of gun violence everywhere. Holly Sanger is an Iowa City-based clinical psychologist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.